This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Plum Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Lone Wolf PCs. Food TV. Knight's Black Symbiotes. And the Somerton Man Mystery. You're cunning. You are fierce. Aw, thanks, Robin. No, I'm talking about your stats and magical kitties save the day from our friends at Atlas Games. Magical kitties save the day is a role-playing game for players of all ages. It's on Kickstarter now. And magical kitties save the day, you need to use your magical powers to solve problems and save the day. It's got everything we love in a role-playing game, plus magical kitties, robots, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. Teach your kids how to role-play. Create a party of magical kitties. Use your powers and... Save the day! It's on Kickstarter until August 15th. Search for it today or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more... Into the gaming hut. But I'm looking around the gaming hut, Robin, and I'm the only one there. <laughs> I think it's because I'm so cool. There's got, lots of other right over in the corner, Ken, and they're they're mad at you. No! How are they be mad at me? They're jealous of my katana and my trench coat and my cowboy hat. Because I'm awesome! I'm a lone wolf, Robin! I don't play well with others. And I insist you include me in your Group activity. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, as, as we're alluding to, uh, and by the way, you can tell from the fact that our voices are overlapping more than usual. This is our annual uh, talking to you from our hotel in uh, Indianapolis right before Gen Con starts. And we're here in the gaming hut to talk about lone wolf PCs. And uh, everybody is familiar with the player who wants to play a lone wolf uh, for the uh, premise of this uh, segment, you may be that player. You may be that player. And uh, we're here to give you advice on how to play the lone wolf without annoying everyone else in the group. And Ken, uh, would you like to start by stating the obvious and explaining <laughs> why playing a lone wolf might annoy everyone else in the group? Uh, the basic reason is because you are uh, hogging the spotlight. There's more than your share of activity uh, has to be devoted to you if... Half of the story is the rest of the party, and the other half is you doing cool things on your lonesome. In a collaborative uh, story, it risks tuning out the other players. In a cooperative pastime, it is selfish. And in terms of narrative constraint, it is an extra problem for the GM because they have to have two stories going instead of just one and create uh, challenges that while they will challenge your lone wolf character will not murder them for being all alone as every other challenge in a group uh, adventure activity is designed specifically to do. So between all of those things, one might even say, why even bother? Why not just play someone who can get along? And the answer is because in many, many genres, there are characters such as beloved Aragorn or whoever that have to go out on their lonesome to do cool things. And uh, it is part of the... Uh, narrative C in which role-playing uh, bobs along in its fun little boat. So how do we get the fun of having a, a scout, a ranger, an assassin, a sniper, a lone character who must operate alone to be 
uh, effective and still have all the fun of cooperative and collaborative role-playing. Robin? Right. Um, And another, uh, I think probably the archetype that informs most people who dysfunctionally play (laughs) roles would be Wolverine. 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 Uh, And uh, Han Solo, in another way, is sort of a lone wolf, although we never actually see him go doesn't ever do anything alone except get frozen in carbonite. Yeah. but the uh, the thing about those characters that makes them dramatically interesting, that makes them uh, likable in the end, is that they are the lone wolves who realize at the end that they need the rest of the group, and they love, and they're that they loyalty matters more than selfishness. Altruism versus selfishness is one of the classic arcs of dramatic arcs in general, and particularly in genre adventure. But they resolve toward altruism or toward uh, you know loner versus group member. In the end, they are always headed toward that and the and that uh, even Sherlock Holmes needs Watson and he recognizes that yes absolutely and uh, the thing that a lot of people I think leave out when they're playing Wolverine or the person with the trench coat the katana is the part where they then cooperate with the rest <laughs> of the group and prove that uh, uh, they need the group and the group needs them so uh, the thing about a lone wolf character uh, the, the thing about Han Solo and Aragon is eventually they resolve those things, but Wolverine keeps unresolving them and then re-resolving them. Because again. Wolverine is in a uh, continuing serial, uh, the comic book, which by definition can never come to a resolution. Right, because, because he's an iconic rather yeah, than a icon. transformative hero, right. uh, to use uh, someone's term. Um, and the standard term, I the, believe. The standard term now. Um, and so as you uh, tackle your lone wolf character, you're looking at two things. You're looking at ways to make sure that your time on screen is engaging to everyone else. So you are not playing a lone wolf in order to realize your real-life desire for autonomy over your friends, Mm -hmm. but rather you are entertaining your friends with your cool lone wolf character, going snickety-snick in a way that they can appreciate, Uh, and you are working toward ways to have that a moment of reconciliation to happen at the end. So uh, I guess the first test is to ask yourself to uh, have the self-awareness to uh, explain whether you are there in order to uh, entertain the group of players in a way that may sometimes annoy the characters right. or whether you are engaging in uh, premise rejection uh, to, to name another term, uh, another standard, and, term. And another standard term, by uh, rejecting the entire premise of group play and trying to subvert whatever it is. And I don't know, but uh, you can. But I have occasionally played with players who, consciously or otherwise, are looking for ways to a subvert the premise of whatever we're doing and b absent themselves from the rest of the group to take their ball and go home. So, is there anything we can say to those players? Uh, assuming they even care to listen to us, other than don't do that. Right. I mean, one of the things that you have to recognize with any collaborative hobby, and certainly with role-playing, is, and this is what Robin's Laws told us eons ago in the before time, is everyone's playing for a different reason. And you have to recognize that reason and feed some of it to keep the collaborative entertainment going. That It's both the combo and the individual soloists are all part of it. And if, you know, you may have a player who never wants to do anything except one time they really want to use the psionics rules or they want to do whatever, you should give them that. And similarly, a player who wants to be Wolverine or Aragorn is a player who is not immediately uh, to be shunned and driven out of the group. Although, keep that in your back pocket. (laughs) Um, 
you have to say what is the thing about Aragorn and Wolverine that they can do that will give them the maximum amount of fun while also not producing dysfunctional play for all the other reasons. And it may just be that what they want is some measure of specialness, right? That in a world of mutants, Wolverine is the only immortal mutant, and he's the best at what he does. Aragorn is true king of, of man, right? The true king of Gondor. And there are elements of those characters that, yes, make them special, and that's kind of the genius of the one unique thing in 13th Age, is it gets everyone right on the table saying, what do you want to be special about? Uh, and I would say, first, see if you can just steal that mechanic for your game, whatever it is, especially if you suspect you have subverty type players. Um, my players are all very good now. And, uh, they have <laughs> harnessed, sternly they, they have harnessed their subversion into, um, uh, the subvertist they get is, is what is called the Scooby. In a game in which you are playing mystery solving teens, someone wants to play the talking dog, but the talking dog is helpful and adds uh, fun change-ups and, and creates fun drama and chaos and not uh, selfish drama and chaos. Scooby is always with Shaggy. He's always working with the group. Scooby is still the center of attention. It's still his show, but he does not sideline everybody else. And that is the difference between Scooby, who is a good character, and Wolverine, who is basically kind of a, a bad character. Um, except every now and again, he is, as you say, forced into some sort of dramatic arc. He'd be a great solo character, but he's literally on a team book. So what can you do? So with, with those characters, you, you identify the thing that they want out of that part, and you try and feed that as much as you can in the context of collaborative play and in the context of social cues. So have NPCs recognize that character and be impressed. That costs you nothing. Even if, you know, they're impressed, they may still be drawing down on them to, to mow them down with machine gun fire. And that is kind of a compliment. It's Wolverine. Use the armor-piercing ammunition. That kind of, yeah. oh, yeah, get him. Um, that's, that's what they want out of it. And it is a way to feed ego that feeds into drama as opposed to feeding away from uh, group activity. Right. Um, you've moved ineluctably, as we tend to do, toward what GMs should do right. uh, with the lone wolf. But if you are the lone wolf... Uh, my earlier call to self-awareness can be implemented like so, which is uh, sometimes the GM will step out of narrative mode into uh, explanatory GM mode, and, and uh, I don't even think role-playing games really have a fourth wall, uh, which is a, perhaps a, other, a whole other segment. But <laughs> I, I sense that it is absolutely a whole other segment. Right. Uh, but for the purposes of this discussion, you can break the fourth wall as a player and say, I'm playing a kind of Wolverine-y sort of guy, so I want to go through a thing where I go off on my own and then prove myself again to the group. So that when you get into the argument with the, say, tactician player who's like, no, it's foolish to ever split the party. Why are you doing that? We need to be safe. We need. If someone is... Uh, if another player is, as a player, offering you opposition, right. step out of... Is the, the Cyclops to your Wolverine. Yeah. Step out of the mode where you're either in or out of character just sort of arguing tactics in world and say explain what you want out of the scene and reassure everyone that you are not there to hog the spotlight but that you want to uh, iterate this classic genre pattern right uh, you maybe not use that phrase but you say yeah. you know I want to no use that specific phrase that is the only <laughs> phrase <laughs> Speaking of standard terms, and so say, well, I, I, you know, I've got a lone wolf guy. I want him to go off and be lone wolfy. But don't worry, you know, between the GM and I, we are aware that this is what is going on, and this is a universe where these things happen. Now, at this point, the GM may step in and go, oh no, that's not a universe where these things happen. Right. This is the aliens' universe, 
in which if you, yeah, you go alone, you're going to be eaten or possessed. Yes. Uh, and uh, the whole lesson of aliens, of course, is don't split the party. Um, but it, it, in a universe where these tropes are, are possible, make it clear that that's what you're trying to do. And part of that is explaining to the players that they can relax, that you're not going to do the thing that everyone absolutely thinks you are going to do without that assurance, uh, but also sort of cues the GM, go, oh, yeah, maybe I better lessen the number of beholders in the warehouse. Right. and uh, Or at the very least give that character an opportunity to get away having seen the beholders yeah. so that their solo op actually helps the party as opposed to merely gets the ranger killed. Yes. Um, and uh, also as, as the player, you can uh, ask yourself, you know, you can... Hold your powder until you see an opportunity for lone wolfiness that actually helps everybody else out. And then people then can sit back and enjoy. So they'll already sort of have the message, oh, this is going to only take up X amount of time. Because everybody in the group gets a certain amount of spotlight time in an efficiently run game. Uh, and your spotlight time is just going to take place with your character off on their own. And... Uh, quite often, players will enjoy a moment to relax and see somebody else doing something cool. And, and then to watch, sort of become spectators of the horror movie of your character walking into danger. Yes. Um, so if you've uh, decided, you know, I'll scout ahead, you know, the legitimate use of a ranger, then you're excited because you don't know what's else in the dungeon, you don't know what the monsters are, and you have the fun of watching that. And it is incumbent on the player and the GM to keep that scouting mission tight. So rather than pixel bitch every single 10 foot square you say you go down a curve through a hallway you jump over a crevasse because we know that his dex and strength are very yeah. high we don't have to roll for that and he gets to the overhang and down below he sees and you know it, it's the goblet orgy or it's the nine beholders um, uh, forming into the Neniad that will destroy the world and then you're there and you, the uh, scout, or the ranger, are like, oh, I'm the best there is what I know. That's nine beholders, or a goblin orgy, or both. Uh, I would really like the wizard to be here now. And that then becomes a tactical challenge to overcome. And the wizard's like, you know, I'm going to try and communicate with the, with the ranger, with my wizard eye, or I'm going to, uh, the monk will telepathically talk to him, or whatever. And you can use those. And in many games, you've already got familiars, you've got some other methodology by which you can have that multiple camera angle. Um, and then it's just, how do we get there? And can the ranger hold them off long enough for us to run through? Oh, now we have to get across that crevasse. We know there was a crevasse because we heard about it. Um, but, oh, the crevasse. And so that becomes sort of running into the excitement that you've already programmed. So in a way, it's it builds layers into the fun as opposed to taking layers out of the fun. One thing you can do, not every scenario, but if you pull it off, will be something you will remember forever with the rest of your group, is to collude a bit with your GM ahead of time to do the other classic thing the Lone Wolf does, which is the surprise rescue, coming in with the Millennium Falcon at the last minute, mm. even though you're going to go off and spend all of your space coins. Um, and so uh, you can say to the, I want to pitch this thing where my character will go off in a snit, or, you know, I'm going off to be selfish or to break the casino or whatever it is that works. And uh, But then shift focus to the rest of the group and have me come in suddenly on round three with some cool 
or right. ability or something that I've got or uh, or you know you can actually do the scene where you go and get the special anti-holder gun or, or mm-hmm. what have you uh, and you know just ask the GM to fudge the time enough that you can show up in the middle of the thing just when you're most needed right and uh, have a big sneak attack with the anti-beholder gun and if you do that first of all you're uh, reinforcing the rest of the group and again you're uh, iterating a classic uh, adventure trope, which would be a lot of fun to do. Uh, that's a bell you can only ring so many times, but uh, if you, it's something I think people almost never actually think to do. So it would be yeah. very cool if you would pull it off. And it's and it's and it's a way again to recuperate the uh, problem lone wolf guy into the rest of the party because you can ask the lone wolf guy what's the thing that you can see yourself doing that really helps the party. And they have to think of that. And it may just be, I show up with my katana and I mow down the bad guys. Great. Now we have a thing that you're doing. You're doing it to help the party. You can establish timing. You can do that. As opposed to just, I have a katana to have a katana. That's its own justification. Which, true in real life, not so much true in games. Right. Uh, and or narrative. Right. And also you want to make sure... Uh, is your katana an emotional katana? Are you doing this in order to find a sublimated way to be kind of a jerk to your friends? Right. Uh, and uh, if if you suspect this might be true, it is. It is. And, um, and if you abs- are absolutely sure it's not true, it definitely is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so after performing this self-awareness check, uh, you may uh, want to ask yourself why your players would like to uh, put up with this on an extended basis because uh, Ken already mentioned the shunning card. The GM has the shunning card in their back pocket. Yep. And uh, you uh, presumably do not want to be on the uh, other end of a shunning card. So, um, And when uh, one thing we don't shun uh, here on this podcast are exciting commercial messages. So, From our beloved sponsors. So let us, let us bathe one in and then see what else we have on our script. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? The clatter of pots and pans, the 
smell of grilling meat, the excitement of brightly colored vegetables being chopped up and then fried to death in oil. <laughs> Welcome us once more to the food hut. But wait, we can't actually smell any of it. It's between us and a screen. We're in a television food hut because we're talking about cooking shows and what makes a good cooking show and what makes a bad cooking show and what are the cooking shows that uh, you should be watching already. Robin? So, uh, I guess the first thing I have to say is the last thing I want from a cooking show is instructions on how to cook. Uh, that does not interest me uh, in terms of here's this recipe and here's how to do it. Uh, I'm not a uh, look up instructions on how to do things on YouTube guy. I like to uh, see... Uh, I get like to get inspiration from a, a food mm-hmm. show, but I don't want to be taught how to make a particular dish. That's not how I take in information. So with that big exception, if you're that person who likes to do that, ignore my advice. Uh, from my <laughs> point of view, the the thing that I need to keep watching a food, a food show in which a bunch of cooking happens um, is it still has to be a human story about food and what it means, which means that it's all about the host and about the other uh, people who are featured on the show and, and how they are treated. And incidentally, along the way, I will learn particular tips and tricks and inspirations right. and, and ingredients to mess with that I will then incorporate into my own very sort of improv-style uh, cooking. But I'm not looking for an instructional video, per se. What are you looking for in a I'm show? almost always looking for an instructional video. I'm looking for a personable host who makes food that I want to eat and does so in a way I hadn't thought of to do. And that's, you know, uh, that can be, in theory, that could have been Julia Child, except I was far too young to watch Julia, God bless her. But I am a big fan, for example, of your Nigella Lawson's, your Giada De Laurentiis's, uh, your America's Test Kitchens, all of the shows that are, here is a thing, often it is not made well, we're going to make it well, and here's a, a fun uh, sort of, Bunch of interesting stuff. You didn't know that the tarragon would go well with this thing type, uh, type learning. What I, what I dislike in food shows, and I think maybe Robin is on the same side as me, is with one powerful exception, ridiculous competitions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. With the exception of the original Iron Chef, which was in its own beautiful way, madly inspirational. Uh, in the sense of, I had no idea you could do that, much less, you know, cook that. But on television, I didn't know you could do that. Every other competition cooking show is a waste of valuable time. And it's barely ever a real competition, because like all reality shows, it's stupidly scripted. It's over-engineered. You don't care about any of the people, uh, ideally including the host. Uh, it's just a waste of everyone's valuable time. My lo- lovely wife, Sheila, very much enjoys the British Baking Show. Um, I enjoy it in the same way that you enjoy just having on sort of easy listening music in the background. They're, they all seem very pleasant. Uh, their show about American pies was possibly the worst thing Britain has done since the <laughs> engineered famines in India. But by and large, I have no particular animus to the British baking show, but any competition or fix it up show that is more frenetic than that is harshing my cooking mellow. I want to contemplate olive oil. I want to look at Nice Nigella showing me her spice pantry. I don't want to hear about how uh, Clem stole all the garlic or whatever. For, you all, you people, just cook. Just stop talking. Yes. 
Um, well, I, I dislike all competition shows. Right. So, ergo, also ergo, dislike right. that. You know, even the competition show that had Nick Offerman and Amy Poehler on it. I, yeah, that, I was completely yes, interested. That, that was a show that she also uh, very much enjoyed, and I was just angry that everything that wasn't Nick Offerman rolling his eyes was on. <laughs> yeah, like why are why are you wasting twenty seven minutes of this twenty eight minute show? So. Uh, I do occasionally watch. Uh, Nigella Lawson is fascinating because yeah. it, uh, you know, it's like the best cinematography in the world for a food show. It's yeah. fascinating. Um, and uh, uh, watching stuff like that occasionally, I will uh, get tips. Like for example, uh, if you use wine as an ingredient as well as a beverage, uh, you can freeze wine and have it in ingredient sizes when mm-hmm. you just want to caramelize onions, and it's not a moment when you wish to be. Uh, drinking beautiful wine. That is a Nigella tip. The roasting vegetable formula came from watching a, a Jamie Oliver show. But the things that I uh, most remember are things that not only involve a personable, engaging host, but make me think about uh, food on uh, a deeper level and what it is about. And what it is about is about family and nourishment and sharing. Yeah. So, uh, for example, on salt, fat, acid, heat, uh, Samin Nosrat, it's a fabulous a show which goes into the theory of cooking. Yes, and uh, it's a also less, a terrific book. Yeah, a little less than I wanted it to on the show. I'm sure mm-hmm. in the in the book. It oh, yeah. that. Uh, but also the you know one of the great moments is when she has her mom over to cook a cl- yep. classic family recipe, and it's about the dynamic between you know it's like and that's one of the great moments that everyone loves on Giada is when her aunt Rafi comes over and. Uh, says, well, that's not the way we would do it in Italy. Yes. <laughs> All the time. Your, your grandfather would never have done that. And, and that is also a, a, a theme that I've seen repeated again and again and again on these shows. The genera- Even the generational issue of do you leave the potato skins on when you make a given dish? Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, director of uh, Bennett Like Beckham has a, a cooking segment on the DVD of that where she uh, is making alu gobi and she invites her mom in and it's like, no, you, t- you have to peel the potatoes. <laughs> no, no, I leave the peels on. They have to, but no, no. And we've seen that again and again. And right. I think everybody's everyone who's ever cooked with their mom yeah. has experienced that, in fact. Uh, uh, similarly, uh, the show Ugly Delicious, which is about more than just cooking, but has segments showing people cook. David Chang goes back home to uh, cook at home with his mom. And again, he's doing it wrong. Yep. And uh, that is uh, something I think delightfully goes to the heart of, uh, of cooking in families and family dynamic and, and what food is about more than just uh, being alive, but why it gives uh, uh, joy of life. And that show, again, has the thesis and you get to meet a bunch of uh, other interesting people who have sometimes contrasting thoughts about food and why you make it. And the, the thesis is essentially is that uh, the presentation of the food uh, is much less important than just the flavor of it and trying to eliminate the pretentiousness of, uh, of food. So I recommend uh, Ugly Delicious. And also something that is really just about a vibe of the joy of hanging around in a kitchen with people you like cooking with right. is The Chef Show, yeah. uh, John Favreau, which I actually kind of like better than the movie Chef, that it is very much referencing all the time uh, because it is uh, him and Roy Choi, uh, who was the uh, technical, technical advisor. advisor on Chef. And, uh, and then they bring other people into the kitchen to uh, make stuff and talk about things or they... Uh, hang around with you know people, his his actor friends and stuff, but that it's about the sort of conversational feeling. It's kind of like a, a hangout movie, except it's a hangout TV show where they're cooking food. And right. I don't know if I 
learned anything about cooking other than don't make beignets from the year-old beignet mix that you bought <coughs> last time you were in New Orleans, but fail and then have them ship you new beignet powder. But still, I very much enjoyed that show, and it was sort of a vicarious way of enjoying the community of cooking together uh, when it was just my wife and I sitting on the couch watching. And, and that's one of the things that I, I think not just a good cooking show does, but good cooking shows do it really well, is to create that sense of interplay and byplay and uh, connection. And John Favreau, of course, anyone who ever watched Party of Five, his old talk show, knows this guy is born just to get conversations started. Right, and it was Table for Five. Table for Five, right, yeah. Party of Five was the Jennifer Love Hewitt teen show, which has its own virtues, but is neither here nor there. Um, the uh, Table for Five was a great show, and there's an element of that in uh, the chef show uh, that he has. And one of the things that I think works well with that show that I think is a good dynamic and was one of the reasons that I think America's Test Kitchen was better when Christopher Kimball was on it, and now he's off on his own Milk Street show, which is fine, very much in the instructional video show, although he is getting the same dynamic now with his co-cooks that he used to on the old show, is the sort of amused tolerance of Christopher Kimball. <laughs> and so when one of the cooks is amusedly tolerating the other cook, I think that's somehow, maybe that's just me, maybe that's because <laughs> my default because setting. You, you attract a lot of amused tolerance, tolerance And offer it. <laughs> it's not selfish. Um, uh, but there is a, but there is a degree to which that dynamic works because it's instructional, but it's not sort of, the, the condescension element, I guess, is directed at a, at a foil, a comic foil, and obviously Christopher Kimball's a great cook, but he would usually stand with better cooks, and then they would sort of roll their eyes when he offered to help or, or do whatever, and that provides that sort of other element of, of cooking that is playfulness. And, I mean, Robin alludes to family and to the sort of, I, I think another element that, that sometimes in some cooking shows, and certainly in um, uh, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, you get sort of the history and the, and the deep quality of an in, individual ingredient or a dish. But another thing, and uh, I think... Um, uh, uh, Mexican Day by Day, uh, the Rick Bayless show does that very well with the sort of what is this dish about, but but the sort of the playfulness because that's so important in cooking it is certainly if you have to do it every day, uh, you have to find the sense of play or else it becomes a drudgy chore and then you hate it and then you make bad food, and so you have to be able to enjoy the process of cooking and so you have to be able to enjoy seeing the people on TV enjoying cooking and. And enjoying eating and tasting yeah, food. And, yeah, because exactly, so, right. so many, like a pretentious food show will make you forget that food is meant to be enjoyed and is a source of pleasure and that you have to taste things while you're right, cooking. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, that's very much part of the chef show. And there's a moment where uh, basically everybody from the first Spider-Man movie is hanging around in a cool restaurant in yeah, Atlanta. Right. And Tom Holland... Uh, everyone watches excitedly as Tom Holland tastes his first oyster. oyster. And it's always a delight to be with a, 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 a young Spider-Man age person and watch them eat their first oyster. And you, you get to do that vicariously. Yeah, it, because um, that, that you can't have your first oyster again. You can only have Tom Holland's first oyster now. <laughs> exactly, yes. Right? And that element, I think, uh, if a show is playful <laughs> and it is joyful, that's better than it being sort of didactic. Or like pretentious. The, or pretentious. Um, the chef's Table on Netflix, I will um, point to as, as an insufferable show yeah. because it's a hagiography of the genius of each individual. And, and, and this is why I, I dislike Jamie Oliver, is he's very um, uh, proud of himself, and I'm sure deservedly so, but 
he annoys the living crap out of you when you watch him cook anything because he's visibly impatient that he has to do it for the camera in the first place. And God knows all of his other shows are just about humiliating people and yelling at them. Then you need the, to watch Jamie Oliver Goes to Italy. Did you see that one? No. Because no, that no, is the one that. in which he is humbled. Oh, the, he is brought low. He is brought low. He goes to Italy to cook Italian foods for Italians. And yes. guess how that goes? Everybody's <laughs> awesome. grandmother says he's doing it wrong. wrong. That, that does remind me. Of, and, and again, Anthony Bourdain had that playfulness and the joy and the history in his shows, which were mostly travel shows with food in them. But... The, the epi- one of my favorite Anthony Bourdain, second only the Chicago episode, is the episode where he goes to Sardinia and he's cooking for his uh, future in-laws. Uh, it's his girlfriend's family, I guess. And it's a disaster. <laughs> he just, he doesn't do it well. He's off his game. Also, they're better at cooking Italian food than he is. Is he cooking for Dario Argento? Or uh, no, it's, it's the, the previous, previous batch. Okay. Right. Um, uh, because it, then I can go wrong a whole other oh, way. Oh, yeah, no. Believe me, I want the show where <laughs> Anthony Bourdain cooks for Dario Argento, but I think that only plays at night in my <laughs> after drinking absinthe. But yeah, but but that just the level of of increasingly hilarious pile on of of the sort of quintessential cooking tough guy makes for great television. And Bourdain, of course, famously had a great sense of humor about stuff like that. And so it was it was always. I mean, this is a guy whose idea of a show was to film himself eating bugs. Uh, for the delectation of, of locals, so good for him. But that that element of the of the mighty brought low is is one of the fun things I think in in a lot of these shows. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, I would recommend Mind of a Chef as a show that has a tight anthology format that has some actual cooking and some food history and uh, some sort of behind the scenes uh, restaurant business stuff. And on that note. I think it's time for us. Uh, we're getting very, very hungry. So in the space of this short commercial, we'll go and eat an entire delicious meal and then be back with yet another segment. The Best of Asphageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive through. Be the kind of lone wolf maverick who keeps podcasts alive. Join such Patreon supporters as... Matt Farr. Miko Araxanen. Jung Boy. Wayne Rossi. And John Rogers. It's time once more to Ask Ken and Robin, but this is no ordinary Ask Ken and Robin. This is a Tell Me More Ask Ken and Robin, where Brian 
inspired by my capsule. Patreon backer. Patreon back, backer Brian, inspired by my Ken and Robin Consume Media capsule review of Venom, uh, which uh, is a film that holds some pleasures. Uh, if it's uh, not entirely a, a coherent uh, collection of uh, moods and, uh, uh, and and a lot of nonsense, yeah. uh, and so, uh, but Brian would like to know how to take uh, Venom-style alien symbiotes and make them the uh, Knights Black Agents vampires. Uh, so, uh, Ken, I guess the first question uh, is: Are symbiotes already vampires? Um, I think that a symbiote that merely lives on you is just a parasite. If it's a vampire, it has to want to drain or replace you, right? Because it's removing something of yours, whether it's your personality or your individuality or your blood. That's the vampire quality of it, and that it ideally needs that to survive, that it's not just doing it for, for grins. Right. And and the, the symbiotes in Venom, not only just Venom, but the uh, en- enemy symbiotes... Uh, clearly, one thing that they do not have is covert OPSEC. No, no, they don't. <laughs> they are over-the-top, crazy, uh, very overt villains. So the first thing I think we would have to do with symbiotes is uh, dial them way back so that they can run a conspiracy and be hidden from, from the world. Yeah, or, I mean, you can have your cake and eat it, too, because you can have your symbiotes that fell on the old meteor, right, from 5,000 years ago, and have learned over the millennia to dial it back. And then, uh, you know, the Earth passes through the same comet tail uh, in the present, and a bunch of new symbiotes fall, and those can be your Venom ones, so you don't have to lose the fun of wacky, over-the-top Looney Tunes monster bad guys, and the attacks are mostly happening, like, in the Third World, or the government is silencing them, or the elder vampire symbiote conspiracy has to silence them. And that brings the immediate... You know, that's what they want. And so you can answer the question, what does the conspiracy want? It wants to shut up these young, stupid symbiotes, not kill them because they're, they're, you know, they're, they're their own kind. And they, at the very least, they want to catch up on old comet business. They might have useful DNA. Right. They have useful DNA. There's so many reasons to keep your, your friendly symbiotes alive, but your, your, your pals, but the, but they still don't want them out there, you know, blasting out Jim Carrey style wacky mask antics. What they want them to do is sort of learn to sort of keep it real, uh, become a second-tier Democratic candidate for president, <laughs> something like that. Um, not um, uh, just, um, uh, you know, uh, gobble up a stop sign or This something. symbiote is only 3% in the polls, but he's got a lot of small donors. He does. He's a lot of small donors. Um, and, and so the, the that sets up your story and still gives you the fun of, we want Venom, but Knights Black Agents. So people don't come in and say, but where are all the giant face melties? Uh, and you, you can still have that. Right. So I think this suggests a sort of a fun progression to, to wrap a series around, which is uh, stage A, you're the burned agents who know that something weird is chasing them. Uh, act two is you discover those things are alien symbiotes. And act three, uh, guess what? The comet arrives and down come the crazy venoms and you know... Uh, you finally figure out what it is and where the reference is coming from. And that, uh, if, cause if you have everything just happen in the antecedent action as part of the backstory, and there's already, you know, a crazy symbiote in the first, uh, episode, you hope have nowhere to escalate to. Right. Uh, but if you do it as a sort of a cool surprise at the end, I think it's easier to sustain, uh, symbiotes run rampant across the planet. If it's like the last half Act, or last right. third of your, uh, 
series. And then you can foreshadow when the comic comes back. And everyone's like, oh, uh, the, the conspiracy's waiting for something. They've taken over the Arecibo telescope or, or whatever. And you're trying to, what, what could they possibly want? And as you figure out that these creatures that um, uh, sort of meld into your into your body but can emerge as living death shadows, um, which is cool, that these things are, are out there and they're doing something and you maybe can figure out, oh, they're from space. That's why they want the telescope. What does that mean? And then you have the just on the news. Oh, new comet is coming, and oh, but this is this is what's happening. And then you're prepped for an invasion, but you're not prepped for precisely the the crazy style of invasion. I would say you can't open with that as the inciting incident that says this is what tells your burned agent something is wrong. They're in you know uh, Luanda, Angola, or somewhere, and suddenly symbiote outbreak, and they put it down because they're the, uh, the tough guys on the scene. Um, and then they discover, oh, this is very similar to the weird blood type of that guy, you know, that we met, and now we have a thing. And every so often, if you need it, you can have another symbiote fall that wakes people up, and then they figure out, oh, we're in a comet tail, that's what's happening. And so they're solving the problem at the same time the conspiracy is solving the problem. So it's a race to who can destroy the comet or you know, subsume and weaponize the comet the way that the conspiracy wants to. Um, and so for the, the older school uh, symbiotes are already present, they're, uh, I think we want to give them a kind of a body snatcher quality where uh, if they do uh, achieve symbiosis with someone, they then have a measure of control and influence right, over yeah. them. And so they're basically more puppet masters that they, uh, you know, they don't have any need to uh, go around being all venomy. They just, uh, you know, strategically choose the people that they want to uh, assimilate, and they can kind of remote control them or just sort of program them a little to behave in a particular way. And so they've got an international conspiracy, and they've, they're long-range thinkers, of course. They've known for uh, hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, that the comet is coming again. And they remember how, how nutty they were mm-hmm. uh, back in the day, and they don't want that to repeat because uh, they uh, enjoy all the things of civilization, which possibly that they've arranged, right? Mm-hmm. Just because you're a symbiote doesn't mean you don't want a strong Wi-Fi symbol or mm-hmm. uh, access to, you know, you uh, you have to possess someone in, to, in order yeah, to enjoy it. They started yeah. the space program. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, perhaps they are there basically to enjoy the pleasures of, of uh, life on this planet and skim the cream of experience. And, uh, you know, you have to possess someone in order to enjoy a, a 12-course tasting menu or... Uh, to, uh, or, you know, sometimes even you can enjoy a spiral and a heroin addiction and then work. Right. Uh, and so basically, uh, the, uh, people on the planet are, are, are the puppets that they've arranged for their, uh, pleasure and, uh, they don't want anyone messing with that. Uh, a big, you know, reign of symbiotes is gonna wreak havoc on the infrastructure. They're already, uh, basically, you know, the hidden masters, the, uh, the, the, the 1%. They're the, uh, they've got everything the way they want it. They, mm-hmm. they don't want basically someone to come and tromp through their garden. And, and every so often, if they want to grow a mouthful of needle sharp teeth and just eat somebody, they can. They can. Yeah. You do that, but you have to do it on the down low. Right. Um, and so this is why that you, you've arranged for, uh, the, the world's intelligence agencies to exist because, uh, you are concerned, I guess, not just, you wouldn't bother to, do that unless you're also worried about rogue venoms, I guess. Yeah. That would be another issue where uh, sometimes somebody somebody goes too deep, they get into the wrong person who's uh, 
full of unruly passions and there's a backwash of passion that you can experience and then they go on the, the, the rampage and it's not as bad as the coming wave but it's enough that you need to create this whole security apparatus. I mean, if they're the, if they're the 1%, they're already in the global elite, they made the uh, security state to keep the rest of the world down. Right. I mean, that's the main reason for it is just to have there be no stupid rebellions that mess with everyone's stock prices. Uh, which is to say, the reason we have security states anyway. Um, but but the notion that the that there's a, a watch list for bad venoming is fun because then that can be a thing that your players twig to, and they're like, why? What is this weird watch list? Yeah. That with the you know what is a what is a a a, um, a, a case uh, you know a, a case venom or whatever, and then. Oh, that's what a case venom is. Right. That, that can be your early inciting right. incident that is your, the foreshadow is a big thing. So you, at first you, you think, oh, this is just an agency that watches out for these rogue venoms. Okay. I'm kind of down with that. I can, yeah. and then, oh, but wait, I've discovered, oh, oh. darn it. Yep. It turns out that the person controlling the, uh, uh, the, DNI is, oh no, it's another Venom. Okay, well, what do we do about this? And then you deal with that. And then finally it's like, oh, and now there's a comet coming. And, and it's full of Venoms. Full yeah. of Venoms. Venoms right. all the way up. Yep. And so the, uh, and, and that quality of uh, story gives you sort of a complete uh, arc. And when we've completed the arc, we're done. So I, once we hear the words, we're done... Uh, I think it's time for us to uh, move on, uh, as ever, through an exciting commercial message and see uh, what exciting additional hot awaits for us on the horizon. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow. Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tyne sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. And finally, it's time to enter that most ambiguous of huts. And here in Indianapolis, it's even more ambiguous because I think you can smoke in the hut here. Uh, and so it's very smoky. I'm not sure what hut we're in. I'm looking out. Oh, wait, there's the gray alien. There's the Nordic alien. And they're drinking kombucha and uh, talking about going to the state fair. And I'm looking out the window. And there is the alien cat lurking on the famous moors of Indiana. And they inform us that we are in the Elliptony hut, the hut where um, weird and mysterious things that might fit into one or another hut, but we're not sure, uh, get together and uh, present us with uh, something to plumb. And in this case, uh, this is something we foreshadowed in our uh, look at ways to lure people into uh, scenarios set in Australia, 
And Ken, you wanted to put a pin in uh, one famous Australian mystery that uh, needs its own segment, and that is the Tamam Shud Somerton Man case. And so this goes all the way back to the 1st of December, 1948, Somerton Park Beach, south of Adelaide. A dead man is found, and that dead man is just no no ordinary deceased individual, but one who inspires uh, mysteries uh, even to this day, because he, uh, among other things, he has what seems like a core clue. Yeah, he does. <laughs> Gumshoe in his pocket. It's when you don't need a skill to get, right? But it's the first scene, so mm-hmm. you just get it automatically. Uh, and what that uh, clue is is there's a scrap from a copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam uh, in. Uh, the fob pocket of his trousers. This isn't found right away, though. It's found right. like months they, they, later. They, they find it during, basically, the, the inquest, because uh, when they're going through his stuff. Right. And the quote is, Tamam should, which means... Which means, it is finished. Uh, and he was finished, but we're not finished talking about it. No, we're not. Uh, Tamam should is Persian, because uh, Omar Khayyam wrote in Persian. He wrote his poetry in Persian. He was a Persian poet. Uh, the Sartan man was not Persian, as far as we know. He was, you know, a normal-looking brunette guy, uh, normal for Australia, NFA, I guess. And um, he, uh, no one knows what happened to him. They know he was poisoned. That's what the uh, cause of death was eventually decided to be. They didn't know if it was self-administered or given to him by someone else. And we don't even know what poisoned because guess what? All the autopsy records are missing because all of it is missing. It happened in 1948 when, according to the book, the Unknown Man by G.M. Feltus, who himself was a South Australian cop. And that book, by the way, given to me by the lovely and talented Dennis Detwiller, contains all you want to know about The Unknown Man, uh, including a lot of weird letters to the editor from Australians <laughs> <laughs> who uh, insist that they knew who he was, such as he was Marshal Voroshilov of the Soviet Union. And they looked into it, and the Marshal was still alive. Or was he? Dun, dun, dun. Uh, yes, they compared uh, his physiognomy, and it matched perfectly. And there are indeed, indeed cases going down to, I think, 2003, where they found a uh, merchant marine ticket that uh, had a picture on it of the person that all foreigners who worked for the U.S. Merchant Marine had to have an ID card. And this card was in the name of H.C. Reynolds, and the ears and mole matched, according to to uh, the card. So maybe it was H.C. Reynolds, although, of course, as always with this case, they discovered a different Horace Charles Reynolds who was in the U.S. Merchant Marine and had the same ID number and died in 1953. And uh, the copy of Ruby out of Omar Kiam, uh, the reason they discovered what it was is they looked around uh, and they found an abandoned car that had some luggage and uh, the Omar Kiam's book in it. Uh, and they were like, aha, and on the back there was uh, a coded message, and inside there was a phone number. And they said, great, we're going to call the phone number. The phone number was of an area nurse. And the area nurse said, well, yes, I gave a copy of uh, Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam to a fella uh, that I met in the war. And they're like, great, this is perfect. And they find the fella, and he's like, oh, yeah, I got my copy of Omar Khayyam right here. Uh, a lovely nurse gave me that. And the whole sort of parallel time track quality of this case, I think, drove literally everyone in Australia loco. Right. And certainly it made the South Adelaide, the South Australian police and the Adelaide police super unhappy with the case. 
and as I alluded, much of the original case file has been destroyed or lost. Because I don't want to say tulpa, but yeah. I do want to say tulpa. Yeah, yeah, I think you can say tulpa. And, and the notion that uh, they had, and then they find the guy on the on the beach, and they have an eyewitness, for example, there's another time slip thing, who saw someone sitting in the same position that the guy's body was found in the night before. He's found in the morning. Someone else is walking along the beach and say, oh, I saw a guy wearing a suit sitting on, on the beach. Um, and he, he looked like he was sleeping off a drunk, so I ignored him. And they and they find the guy in there. Well, that's probably him, except that when they did the autopsy, the pattern of lividity indicated he had not been sitting up. He had been lying down when he died. And this guy was not found lying down, but he died lying down. And so no one knows anything. And it's the beautiful, fractal nature of this case that I think has driven everyone crazy and makes me love it, despite the fact that there really isn't a lot specifically electronic besides the code, the allusion to Persian poetry that is <laughs> omnipresent in The King in Yellow, and the very real possibility that he was a spy, a communist. Right. So uh, we've covered the uh, elliptony a bit. You want to go into a bit more of the, the spy angle? And, uh, well, it's 1948, right? The, the KGB... Uh, I, I guess at that time the NV, NVD was in operation all over the uh, all over the world, and uh, South Australia is very convenient to a number of uh, Adelaide is very convenient to a number of uranium processing facilities, to the Woomera launch uh, uh, and uh, space tracking facility. Uh, there's a number of, of, of things in South Australia that would have been legitimate, not legitimate. You know what I mean? Uh, understandable Soviet targets, right? And it was very much the case in the 40s that the Western intelligence services were playing catch-up ball, and the Australian intelligence service at that point was was barely a, a beautiful dream in anybody's eye, and uh, very much playing catch-up ball, and so the notion that this guy um, may have been a, a, a Soviet agent who um, uh, uh, came to some Soviet misadventure, or uh, a scientist or a defector who was captured and perhaps interrogated, uh, and then, you know, uh, if he was interrogated with a barbiturate cocktail, that might have caused an overdose, given him the same poisoning symptoms, and then they dump his body on the beach and leave it as a mystery for everybody else after carefully clipping out all of his tags. Except, of course, they didn't clip out all his tags. His tags, in fact, indicate that he bought his clothes in Britain, Australia, and America. <laughs> because... Why not? Yes. And they said to themselves, Let, let's make this dead body dumping seem realistic and normal by putting a chunk of the ruby out of Omar Khayyam <laughs> in his pocket, pocket Bob. Right. No one will pay any attention That's, to that if we do that. That would be the That's perfect just, crime. Yeah. Because, you know, it's perfectly perfectly normal for bodies to show up with uh, bits of uh, poetry. Uh, primarily Persian poetry of the 12th yeah. and 13th century. Yeah. <laughs> You find someone with a copy of Hafiz in his pocket, well, that's obviously a murder. But am I like I am? No, it's probably just death by misadventure. So, uh, our, our next mission then is to, uh, to turn this into a gaming thing, find a scenario to wrap it around. And I guess the, the obvious play is you investigate the murder at the time, mm -hmm. uh, or uh, perhaps you are the one conducting the veil out in order to make sure that the murder, the true murder is not discovered. But I think the uh, less obvious uh, way to go at it is it's the present day and uh, uh, your uh, agents are in Australia for a mission and a dead body shows up uh, with 
uh, another little bit of the rubric of Omar Khayyam in his uh, jeans uh, fob pocket and uh, his uh, in another bit of uh, encrypted text. And guess what? So many years later, it's it's happened again. It's happened again. And then the question is, is it a time slip? Is it a vampire with a grudge? Is it, you know, some sort of weird uh, performative conspiracy, the making manifest that which should be hidden um, type behavior that Downard and others enjoy believing the Masons do? Right. I mean, the, the notion that it's basically a, a slow culture jam is, uh, is is perhaps ineluctable, especially right. if you have a weird... Which, of course, makes it the, uh, an esoterrorist uh, scenario right off the bat. Right, it's yeah. just the process of having an esoterrorist cell recreate the details of that murder and do it again. Mm-hmm. Is some, That's the kind of stuff they do in order to weaken the membrane. So there might not be much more to it except finding the esoterrorist cell that did that before they... Uh, open a hole that lets a bunch of outer dark entities in. And I think one of the fun things that you could do with that is you that becomes sort of the 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 initial thing. It's like, oh, it's as a terrorists. They're trying to mess with us. They're, they're, they do copycat murders all the time. Just find them, close it up. And you go and you investigate the esoterrorists and you discover, oh no, the original 1948 was a successful working. The old esoterrorist cell in Adelaide did it and they were like, great, we have demons. Everyone be cool. Yeah. <laughs> And they just sort of have run Adelaide, and maybe the, the, there was a, a horrific serial killing in Adelaide, the bodies in barrels thing. I forget the name of the guy, but uh, there was a movie about it and everything. And maybe that's them sort of like, okay, we have to sort of let out the jams, and you could maybe have a connection that feeds into that other case. That uh, maybe uh, at some point in the 90s, they had, they all had to let the jams out, and that's what the barrel murders were in Snowtown. A bunch of bodies found in barrels. Adelaide, um, if you if you do a search on Australian serial, serial killers, many of them are from or are operated in Adelaide. Right, so, and only a percentage of them are spiders. It is, uh, yeah, like 19, 25% are spiders, which is low for Australia. And so the possibility that the reason Adelaide has got this sort of weird serial killer magnet is that this successful working happened in 1948 and the Somerton man is sort of the um, because his body is still buried and there's like a a bust of him in the cemetery uh, over the unknown man's grave which of course is an esoteric ritual site now have you seen this corpse? right yes have you if if you too can have a plausible identification that will later be blown to flinders we want to hear from you um, and so the, uh, the, the the possibility that um, this guy's body is the anchor for these outer dark entities, and you have to sort of desecrate the body, or desecrate the grave, dig him up, destroy the body somehow, provide a final identification to close out the old 1948 case, which you have to make bulletproof, because it'll come undone, demons are like that, and then cover up the fact that you've desecrated Australia's greatest mystery site, uh, that, I think, adds a really great third act and fourth act turn to your, oh, it's another copycat murder. This won't take you any time at all. And for the Yellow King role-playing game, uh, again, this kind of writes itself. Yeah. The thing in his pocket, guess what? It's not the ruby out of Overkayam. It's a chunk of the, the play, oh. The King in Yellow. And uh, the uh, I guess the This Is Normal Now characters are uh, vacationing in Australia. They've uh, received a mysterious uh, uh, destination. Uh, maybe they had a destination wedding or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can either go with the sinister or non-sinister reason why they're in Australia, or you are Australian and you're playing them in Australia, as is recommended that you play that section in your home uh, territory. And 
the body shows up and it might be body showing up for the first time but just in the contemporary world and you're trying to figure out what is going on or uh, it's a reality slip that the uh, the way that of course the uh, the yellow king is melting down the connections between the different realities and uh, you know time things are starting to fall out of time and it's the exact same body yet again they can go to the uh, cemetery and uh, set aside the bust and dig him up and he's there uh, but here's the same body identical dna and uh, you know that that's a symptom of, of something else that's going on and uh you uh, want to find out uh, who has the copy of the play, who's been giving basement readings and causing uh, these things to happen because uh, if these bodies continue to pile up, well, that's surely a, a bad sign of uh, more and more uh, show up and you may be you know, burying more than one uh, identical unknown man before the scenario is over. And then maybe the body that you find in that this is normal now is the body of one of your PCs uh, from the wars because, of course, the body's found in 1948, so that period works for it. I don't think you could do it in the wars because finding a dead body is like Tuesday. Yes. Um, and finding a mysterious dead body is just not going to have the same weird frisson. But I think definitely having one of your the wars characters that you're like, well, at least he survived all the craziness. And then he shows up as a mysterious corpse in Australia. And, you know, maybe you are, it is, you know, you're, oh, we're on vacation. And you go to, and you're going through the cemetery and there's, oh, that's the, the mask of your old corpse. Yes. You recognize that that was you. And right. that is the unknown man. Yeah, because this is normal. Our characters have some relationship to the, uh, they're in our time stream though, and not the time stream of the wars. Right, yeah. So it's like, oh, it's my uncle Dave, but my uncle Dave didn't die. It wasn't found dead in, in Australia yeah. in 1948. Uh, I remember him cooking barbecues for me. He sadly passed from uh, cancer in 1986. What happened right. there? And uh, so that adds a whole other layer that allows you to, it's like, oh no, bits of the Boris timeline are starting to, uh, which Floating. is which is the aftermath time, right, timeline, yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, the book does not address uh, what horrible things happen in Australia during that timeline. But something horrible must have happened. Yes. Yeah, because there was a horrible timeline. Yeah, the, 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 the notion of the sort of, you know, time slip, reality slip stuff, obviously, you can have it be a straight up, you know, Yog Sothoth immunization if you just want to do pure Cthulhu. That H.C. Uh, Reynolds or whoever he was, he's a merchant marine. He finds out some hideous truth in the Pacific. He goes to Australia to try and get away from it, uh, takes poison and dies, and then is alive again because Yog Sothoth isn't done with him, or that's not how time works. And you can have all manner of, of mysteries, and then it's just a matter of is the code on the back of the Rubiot finding the secret mythos truths that Omar Khayyam was trying to conceal in his poetry. And if you follow it, and it's, oh, these are initial lines of initial lines of poems, and we put them together, and then we read, oh, it's a translation of a quatrain of the Al-Azif, that that's what he's trying to do, is is he's trying to sort of defuse the Al-Azif by wrapping it around this sort of jaded, rue, drink wine and sleep at night uh, poetry, and then, um, oh, but it's actually the Al-Azif, and that's why the Rubiat has still got this weird mimetic hold on everybody. And if you just want to take the basic image and spin a Cthulhu thing out of it rather than going deep into the details of the case, it's uh, someone is found dead on a beach and they don't have a head. So we we know who's who that uh, is, uh, mm-hmm. is summoning. So you could be uh, you know dealing with a Yigalanak uh, outbreak if you're not careful. And of course, uh, if we're separating ourselves from the details of the original case, once you deal with the first body, 
well, guess what? There's another one showing up, and, and you have to find out the cultists who are doing this in order to uh, uh, bring a good old uh, Y apostrophe uh, into the into the world. And that each the little piece of paper in their pocket is a tiny fragment of the revelations of Glocky, so that when all the bodies are assembled, all twelve of them, it becomes the twelve volumes, and Yigalanet can manifest and and also reanimate those twelve bodies and send them careening around, yes. uh, terrorizing Adelaide or yeah. your area. Right. Wherever your area and, is. You know, if, and if your Cthulhu investigators have not uh, carefully ensured that uh, uh, the Yugalanek bodies are uh, not able to shamble around, you know, the, your, your beginners, let's say. Right. That, uh, Perhaps more rodeos are right. required. Right. But, of course, once Yugalanek reanimates a corpse, the simple matter of reattaching severed limbs is uh, yeah. a simple thing. Right. No, you, you, yeah, you're, you're matching wits with a guy with no head. <laughs> That's all, that's all we're saying about yes. that. Which is also something that happens on the internet a lot, but in a different, <laughs> yes. a different way. Different but similarly a Galanaki way. Right. So this uh, wraps up our uh, indie hotel room episode. Uh, next week you will uh, hear another annual tradition, which is our scratchy-voiced uh, post-Gen Con recap episode. And after that, the episode Alive uh, from a Gen Con, unless something horrible happens to the recording. And then after that, we will be back to uh, comparative normality. So until then, uh, join us a mere seven days from now and wish our past selves luck in surviving Gen Con. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Hellgrain Press. Astragal. Art Dream. North Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Keep this podcast's ingredients from wilting alongside such Patreon backers as Ross Ireland. Todd W. Olson. Andrew Cowie. The Redacted Files Podcast. And Jan Zaleski. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin Murray at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest design, Pollock Fiction. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Ike. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>